You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. You know, your microphones are on. <laughs> yeah, that Peter Beagle is the big... Oh. <laughs> That's all right. A live mic is a source of great American folklore. We'd be a better people if all our mics were live all the time. We would be. Everybody from Joe Biden to Uncle, Uncle John. Welcome back to uh, the Agony Column Live. Now we're going to get these gentlemen to t- talk about about how they do, what they do, why they do it. And one of the things I noticed when I was listening to both of these pieces, and this kind of goes to something that both of their writing made me think, is that I don't know about everybody else here, but I was transported from stickball in New York to Bali uh, faster than they could do it in Star Trek and more effectively. (laughs) And and I'd like to, uh, Peter and, and Alan, each to talk about how you use the language to create that world so quickly in a short form. I mean, we are right there. Alan, we're right there in Bali. Peter, we're right there in New York. Tell, tell us about choosing that language. How do you get yourself into the state to do that? If he knows, I'm waiting to hear. Well, the image, the image that I tend to use, and it's as good as any, is Japanese brush painting because I've watched master classes given by brush painters, and if you use just, with just a few strokes, as long as they're the right strokes, suddenly you have a, a bird in the reeds by a river. And if you step too close, you can't see it. But if you pull back and look at it just so, just the right length, six strokes have created that bird and that, those reeds and that river. I actually do think about that when I'm trying to describe a physical setting or a place because that comes hard for me. And because it comes hard for me, I have a tendency to put in too much. And then if I have any sense or have been properly guided, I'll go back and start taking at least some of that out because it's the, it's always it's like a song. It's the right word on the right note. And you can very easily spend your entire life trying to match the, the right word to the right note. But nobody that I know really can tell you how to do it or gets it right the first time. Mostly it's, it's, it's rewriting and deciding at 5.30 in the afternoon, well, that's going to be it for today. Maybe I can make it better tomorrow. Japanese brush uh, stroke. That's... There's a, you know, you don't know about cargo cults, you know, the, the, the cargo cults on Papua New Guinea, the aboriginals uh, during World War II discovered this, these crates floating down out of the sky that would break open on their mountaintops because the British, the allies were trying to resupply the troops and occasionally these, uh, these caches of material, uh, tools and canned food and such would get blown by uh, fierce winds uh, over the island and, and they would crash on the mountain top. All it had to do is happen once and these cults in, in, in these regions would assemble on the mountaintops waiting for the next one, the next carton to fall out of the sky. And they were few and far between. That's how I feel every morning. <laughs> my, my, the, my, my, to shift the metaphor a little, my, my dear uh, late friend, uh, I guess I could call him my rabbi, Bern Malamud, used to say, you'd be there exactly at the same time at your, at your desk, at your typewriter, every morning, tuned to the same station, he says, and, the, and it'll come down to you. So I, in a funny way, 
I think at least for prose writers, at least poets are another breed. Um, Altogether, oh, they can drink, they can take drugs, they can <laughs> they can fuck while writing a haiku. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> they are very lucky artists, um, but um, prose writers, you know, they, they're the, the poets are thoroughbreds. Prose writers are like mules or donkeys. I mean, we just plod along, same trail every day, and 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 I think. Um, Habit, habit is the best thing for you if you're trying to write prose. See I the cargo cults come down. I had a cat for 15 years who would come and get me if I wasn't at work in the barn at the same time every day. He would meow around my ankles and being half Siamese, he had a, a potent meow. And then he would lead me down to the barn and the little office at the end of it where I worked. And he'd hop up on the desk and I'd sit down and we'd both go to work. I can't even be sure if, if that was my habit, I, but I was that cat's habit. And what I did, what I did, and what I was supposed to be doing was that cat's habit. And that was the nearest to a, a proper rabbi I had. Let me, let me, I want to clear something up. I mean, for, for 40 years, I've been telling this story to, to writing students. I, I, the way I tell the story is that Peter Beagle, in his barn in Watsonville, had a sign over his desk. And whenever he was feeling uh, that he'd strayed from the path, he would look up at that sign and it said, tell the fucking story. <laughs> Am I remembering that correctly? What you're remembering is a sign that was even briefer than that. It said, think, schmuck. <laughs> because that was what I always wound up saying to myself over. Yeah. <laughs> How about, is, is there a bumper sticker entrepreneur here? <laughs> to this day, that's what I find myself saying to myself when I've either lost the track completely or wandered off um, where I don't think I'm supposed to go and maybe this is interesting but where's the story? It does come down to that of course. Yeah. It's funny how, how I misremembered it. Uh, you were close. Yeah. <laughs> Memory is everything but uh, when you try to remember, I've, I've just read this um, terrific little novel, first novel by uh, an Israeli-born uh, psychotherapist, cl clinical psychologist, named Noam Spencer, and it's called The Good Psychologist. And throughout this novel, while he's trying to uh, sort of keep his sorted, uh, his own sorted little life together, he gives he lectures to psychology students at, an, at a university in his town, and he's he always leads off by saying, "The good psychologist is this. The good psychologist is that." And and, and what he advocates is focusing on memory. Without memory, you're nothing, and without memory, uh, nothing is real. Except memory is, in large part, fictional. So, I mean, do you what, do you remember that stickball game that way, or how much of it did you change? I remember. Stick, a, a generality of stickball games, mm -hmm. put it like that. I really do remember that particular women, woman whom we knew was a witch. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's very, it's very close to reality, just taken a notch further. Just, um, just cranked a little tighter. Mm -hmm. But the, the more I wrote those stories, which were written actually to be read, there were podcasts done for a marvelous online magazine called The Green Man Review. It was a, a each, each one was to be for a different season. And I didn't realize until it was pointed out to me by my business manager, chauffeur, and general accomplice over there that each story was taking place a year later. We were 11 in the first, 12 in the second, and so on. And what you reminded me of, I, no, I didn't quite have that sign on the wall, but what I remember, and I think of it often, is an incident when I lived in Santa Cruz 
And I went to a concert at Kumbwa. Does Kumbwa still exist? Mm -hmm. It still does. Okay. I wouldn't have missed this one because one of the great jazz guitarists whom I've admired since I first heard him, um, Barney Kessel, had come to play. And they rounded up a, a local bass player and a drummer to play with him. The drummer was perfectly cool. Barney Kessel, who's Barney Kessel? Drummers are in their own world anyway. The bass player, and I sympathized enormously, was frightened out of his mind, as I would have been. When they, you know, assembled, you know, I was sitting as far up front as I could get. You could see how frightened he was. He was a kid, for God's sake, and he's playing with Barney Kessel. And Kessel led off with a solo, a lovely, graceful, floating thing. And he nodded to the bass player. And my God, the, there's a phrase in show business called flop sweat. Flop sweat is different from ordinary sweat. I've, many I know it very well. It's colder and it's thicker. And the kid's fingers were slipping on the strings of the bass. He was so frightened. And Kessel leaned toward him and said very quietly, tell your story. And then somehow it was all right. Somehow he caught his breath, he pulled himself together, he straightened up, and he played very commendable bass for the rest of the evening. Mm. But I've always remembered, first, that particular graciousness, and secondly, the realization that telling stories covers a lot of ground and a lot of arts. Peter, I, I'm not going to follow you around the country as the, you know, the, the fact-checking beagle squad, but I, I, there is another story now that you're s sitting here that I want to ask you about. <laughs> as our mutual friend Al Young told me this story, and I'm, I think I'm remembering it exactly as Al told He's me. He's also a storyteller. Remember? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I've known him even longer than I've known you. He's riding in the back seat of your car. You're driving, uh, I think, your mutual friend Colleen McElroy is in the front, in the passenger seat. You're driving, or maybe she's driving, and you're in the passenger seat. If That's it's her car, um, she's driving. And and Al is, uh, he well, he's you know he's a prose writer as well as a poet, so he's looking through all the papers he finds in the back seat because <laughs> as prose writers do, they look through other people's mail. Of course. And he sees this envelope, and he and he looks at it. It's open, so he figures it can't. Hurt to take out what's inside. And he said he found there's a check made out to you from some movie producer for $50,000. And, and it was stuck under some old papers and newspapers in the back seat. And, and he said, uh, Peter, and you said yes. And he said, Peter, I just found a check, an uncashed check made out to you for $50,000 in the back seat here. And he says that you turned around and said to him, Oh, Christ, I wondered where that check was. <laughs> Is that true? Let's put it like this. The story and the reaction are true, but being a storyteller, he has added at least one and probably two zeros <laughs> to that check. See, I've been envying you for years now. <laughs> Hell, I, I envy me too. <laughs> um, it's a marvelous story, and I wish to God it were true. I've, I've known it. I've known it to be true, at least, or in, in, I've known it as legend about other people. Babe Ruth was paid $25,000 once for some endorsement, and he liked to carry that check around uncashed, so that when he was in a bar with friends, and it was his turn to buy a round, he'd say, well, if anybody can cash this, and whip out the check. <laughs> and he carried it around with him until a certain November day in 1929. You know, um, talking about large checks, um, Years and years and years ago, our, our dear late friend Jim Houston and I drove up to Marin to visit Wright Morris. I'd never met Morris before, and Jim was going to introduce me to him. And Morris had just won um, and, and one of those NEA Old Masters Awards, and it was a $25,000 uh, honorarium. So he heard, that he heard us drive up, and we knocked on the door, and he opened the door holding a huge... Uh, replica of this $25,000 check, <laughs> almost as large as this table. And that was back when that was money. That was big money. Yeah. You know, Alan, you were talking about uh, memory, and, and one of the things that uh, strikes me is that a really good prose piece, like either one of the ones we just heard, 
um, for the reader, when we read them and immerse in them and come back from them, the way we visit those things in our memory is like as if they are our memories. Mm -hmm. And the best prose writing can become mm -hmm. like that kind of, construct well, that kind of yeah, memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about that. I mean, there are a number of, of states of consciousness, right? There's waking, right, Robert? <laughs> Most of us are awake. <laughs> Sleeping. Meditation, we know that you know, the scientists have verified that the, your brain waves are different in meditation than they are when you're sleeping or waking or dreaming, which is the fourth state of consciousness. But I, I think uh, what happens to us when we're lost in a piece of good prose or poetry, uh, what John Gardner used to say is, describe as falling into this waking dream, I think that's another separate state of consciousness. And I think just as Dreaming and meditation are extremely important to your mental health. I think reading good prose and poetry is in extremely important to your to your mental health. Do you think well? well, yeah. I mean, if you think of um, dance, I mean that state when I mean why what happens to us when we watch really great dance? We move our souls with the dancers, you know. Most of us, you know, would trip and fall on our asses to, to trying to do one step. But w watching a great dance performance, we move, our, our souls move with it. And I think that's extremely therapeutic also. Um, so I, I think probably there's a correlation with uh, vision. We see more deeply than normal when we look at a great painting or a piece of sculpture. Yes. Yes. One thing that one thing that does happen during there are certain phrases I'm very leery of using. One's the creative process. Another one is inspiration. I grew up around artists and musicians, and I can't recall ever hearing any one of them use the word perspire, but not inspire. Yes. But there is a thing, at least for me that happens when I'm actually, I don't know what to call it, paying attention or paying more attention than I usually do. I'm absent-minded. I'd rather be reading at any given moment, almost, and my mind wanders. It is, God knows, the monkey, the monkey mind, certainly. It chatters in half a dozen different tongues. But I'm actually working properly phrase I use is sort of screwing down tight on whatever it is I'm doing, like a microscope or a vice, something else. I don't know how else to put it, and I wish I could get to that state more often because it makes a difference in what I do and in the quality. Think, Schmuck. Yeah, <laughs> it comes down to that. That's exactly it. It comes down to that kind of thinking. It's that... that um, there's a wonderful story, I don't know if this really applies, but that Olivier tells in his autobiography about working with Dustin Hoffman in the movie Marathon Man. Um, if you remember that movie, uh, he plays the evil the, guy. The, the, the and he, and he, Nazi dentist. Nazi dentist, and he gets uh, <laughs> Hoffman in his chair and tortures him with the, the dental drill. And he describes how uh, Hoffman disappeared from the set for a week before that scene. And he showed up completely disheveled, obviously hadn't slept in a week, hadn't washed in a week, hadn't shaved in a week, sat down in the chair and screamed and moaned. And, and at the end of the scene, Olivier said, that, that was marvelous, dear boy, dear, that was marvelous. And Hoffman said, well, you know, I didn't sleep for a week, I didn't bathe for a week, I didn't shave for a week, I just, you know, thought and thought and thought and thought about what it was like to be tortured, and I tortured myself, and I tortured myself, and then I tortured myself again, and Olivier says, well, I, I said to him, well, you did an admirable job, but next time, dear boy, why don't you try acting? <laughs> <laughs> the, I, I, want, I once met, I once met one of the best screenwriter I've ever encountered, Larry Gelbart, who wrote things, who created MASH, 
and wrote an astonishing number of wonderful scripts and plays. It's one of the gentlest people I've ever met. You couldn't get Gelbar to to badmouth anybody, which for coming out of the Hollywood world, where that's dinner table conversation, was unusual by itself. The nearest he got to it was talking about working with Dustin Hoffman on Tootsie. And all he would ever say about that was, did learn one thing in the future, try not to work with an Oscar-winning actor who's shorter than the trophy. <laughs> For Gelbart, that was bad-mouthing. <laughs> so you see, we're really keeping things at a very high level. Here. Not to mention the pith. We're getting right down to the yeah, pith. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll just get out pith helmets, and, and that'll, that'll supply the, our pith for the evening. You know, uh, Peter, you have a, a favorite world of yours that you've created. It's just the innkeeper's world. I didn't know it was going to be a favorite world. You know, I've never been one of those people imitating Tolkien, usually imitating very badly, who create, spend most of their time on genealogies and maps and histories and Armageddon. I just wanted a background for a story that I developed from a song I'd written years before. But I liked that world. I liked being there and I liked my characters. And when I was asked to write a story for an anthology, a fantasy anthology, but based around vocal music, and I love to sing, I sang in, in Santa Cruz for 12 years of weekends at Lustelou. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to take my favorite French songwriter, singer, poet, Georges Brassens, and put Brassens, or what I know of him, back into that world I'd made up for the innkeeper's song. And I had such a good time with that that I wound up writing five more stories. Six of them eventually became a book. And ever since then, you know, I've just looked for excuses to go back to this world that doesn't even have a name, just been calling it the innkeeper's world for, for lack of something better. But it took hold of me to the point where I'm constantly finding things out about it instead of assigning, them to, assigning what I've decided to the world. I, I seem to find out from it when I'm writing a story. I envy you that ability to stay with one batch of material, to stay in one place. I, uh, I guess I'm a kind of restless writer. I go finish one thing and then have to move on to another. Um, I feel cured after I've done one book, but then I get another illness and then have to cure that. Well, I've always been that way myself. I try very hard to make each of the books different from each other. But for the but it's a kind of home for you. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. ain't got no home. Either a home or a beloved vacation spot. <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to ask you. I mean, I was thinking about this um, get together. I wanted to ask you about how how many of you, just as a matter of course, I know you're all serious readers, but how many of you, as a matter of course, read much science fiction or fantasy? Uh, a almost large minority. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do as a matter of course ever since I you know, first started reading. Um, but I don't know many of my writer friends who do that. Uh, they, don't, they don't, as a matter of course, read science fiction. They don't read fantasy as, unless, you know, somebody pushes the book at them. Whereas I think... Um, the, that mode of fiction is, is a true and serious, uh, natural-born American uh, literature of ideas, and I think it's extremely uh, interesting as well as uh, entertaining to read. And it's what the kids are reading. I don't read a lot of fantasy myself. The odd thing is, at one time I did, and now if I read fantasy, it's likely to be either by someone I know, by something I've some, sent by someone I'm reluctantly agreed to do a jacket quote for, or you know something that I always meant to get to that's been around long, sometimes longer than I have, because they're 
you know, wonderful fantasies that go back a much longer way than The Lord of the Rings. What about science fiction? How much science fiction do you read as a matter of course? Next to none mm-hmm. because my so much of the science fiction that I grew up with was basically engineers hard science. Mm-hmm. I had a dear friend, a wonderful writer named Paul Anderson. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, Paul was one of the very few people who could go back and forth between fantasy and science fiction. And I still marvel, I've reread fantasy novels of his that I read when I was a teenager. And they still hold up wonderfully well. I told Paul this and added, and I still can't make head or tail out of most of your science fiction. And that w- that's perfectly true. I went to, the, mind you, to the Bronx High School of Science. And if it hadn't been for the kindness of a few good friends, I might still be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd put in a lot of stickball if you were. Yes, um, by comparison. <laughs> but um, it is curious. I read a good deal more science fiction and fantasy years ago. I think I started dropping off. This is not Tolkien's fault. It really isn't. But there was so much imitation of The Lord of the Rings, and some of it made millions, that especially that really took off during the 80s. And I remember being in a particular specialty shop, science fiction fantasy bookshop, with one of my closest friends. And he and I had grown up on this stuff. And remember us staring down aisle after aisle of things with Frank Frazetta covers, um, you know, the women wearing a lot less than the men, and but just as brawny, and just as anatomi- anatomically unlikely. <laughs> and I remember my friend whispering, Peter, who are these people? <laughs> and we didn't know. We'd grown up on Theodore Sturgeon and Fritz Leiber. And Fritz Leiber is one of the few writers I turned completely into a 14-year-old fanboy fool when I met him. I don't like to think of that. He was very gracious. But I just drooled and dribbled and mumbled, and he did his best to make me feel at home. But he could write. (laughs) And um, somewhere around in there, I realized I stopped reading very much fantasy. I still get sent a lot of it. But unless it's a, a close friend or special pleading, I really don't read it. What, what do you make of um, the, this uh, huge readership for inferior horror fiction that, that we see? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> which? Oh, Ursula's, mm. Ursula's different. That's Ursula's, Ursula's a, a class by herself, for yep. lack of a better phrase. No, that's another matter. <laughs> but I remember, um, I think about now with the, with the series of movies out, um, Connor, my business person, accomplice, and I were in Baltimore, which is a very nice place. I love staying there because we stay with friends. The wife is an old radio buff like me and sends me MP3 recordings of shows that were broadcast before I was born, and the husband brews beer. And I've been trying for a long while to get them to adopt me. (laughs) But um, I've been working on a still unfinished, properly unfinished vampire story, and Connor determined that I should read this thing that was out now, Twilight. Mm. Okay, fair's fair. I haven't read a vampire story in quite a long time. And I, mind you, I'm a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. I know the scripts by heart. And I, I took a bottle of beer and went upstairs. And by and by, I came back down and wanted to know if I had to go on reading this. <laughs> and if I did, I wanted more beer. <laughs> so I went through a fair amount of homebrew finishing that book and haven't read the other since. Yeah, I, I think it's really, um, I mean. Fair's fair. 
they need to understand that the reason I made you read that was because the story is a savage parody of that entire class of fiction. The one I was yes. working on, yes. Do you think it's a serious parody or is it? No, no mine was. Oh, yours is meant to be anyway. And right. So he needed to experience what he was truly savage. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I know there are a lot of school psychologists worry about all these young girls giving blowjobs to guys they don't know. I think it's much worse that they read this vampire shit. It's going to be a m much worse influence on their mental health. Bad writing always is. <laughs> you know, blowjob, you know, won't leave you, you know, scarred, in, at least not in that way. <laughs> but bad writing leaves marks. Can't. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about um, science fiction, at least, is that at, at present for me, I'm living in a world where I cannot, literally almost not tell whether I'm, something I'm seeing is science fiction. And, and I feel like I'm, it, the, you know, I, one of my favorite quotes is when I talked to Kim Stanley Robinson, he told me, Rick, we're living in a bad science fiction novel. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that's, that's true, and, and that's what makes it, I mean, I think there are, there's lots and lots of science fiction on the bestseller charts and on TV that you wouldn't necessarily call science fiction. I have lately been saying that what I really ought to do to jazz up my image and my income is to start writing in Spanish and then be translated back into English and present and present it as magic realism. <laughs> because with all due respect, you know, to some really fine writers like Marquez, um, there's so many tropes and so many characters and stories, you know, and side visits in a lot of, quote, magical realism that fantasy writers have already done, they've already been to, and the, they know that, that train stop. And I've almost come to the conclusion that it's really a, a matter of how, how a book is published and presented in the same way that I think, because some of the best writing I know these days is being written for, quote, young adult fiction, I find myself saying young adult simply means we're not going to be spending as much money promoting this one. Alan, how much young adult fiction do you read? Uh, Huckleberry Finn, over and over again. <laughs> Moby Dick. Um, I mean, as you know, stuff with a tag that says young adult, not very much. But, uh, yes, but that's what I mean. It, you can be that arbitrary. Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, that's very young adult. Yeah, the, the black writers who spent years complaining that they weren't being kind of set aside, are now complaining that they're set aside as black writers. Um, young adult writers who need to be sold complain that they're being sold as young adult writers. I mean, marketing is, is a strange blight in our time, I think. And I don't think any writer really knows how to deal with it except um, by plunging into it, uh, you know, wholeheartedly. And that's you know, a kind of curse also. And it is the kind of thing that can take up altogether too much of your time, altogether too much of your head. I think of a, a friend, long gone, named Edgar Pangborn, hmm. who I read when I was a boy and became friends with when I was grown. And Edgar was what's referred to as a writer's writer, meaning he didn't make any money and enjoyed the respect of his peers. Sometimes that works together. They're, your peers are delighted that you're not making any money. <laughs> but, um, but Edgar was, at least in my presence, sanguine about it. I remember going for a walk with him. We were talking about this. He said, what you do is you bend your neck and you do your work and you don't look up. You do not let your stomach squeeze when you notice that um, somebody who you know couldn't write this is a stick-up if he was holding up a bank, has just signed a three-book contract for more money than you'll ever see in your life. Mm -hmm. And you do not lie awake thinking about somebody whose work you loathe, who has just signed an enormous movie contract. You do your work. And then he gave me a sudden wicked side glance and said, you know what? 
30 years later, 30 years you look up and half your goddamn contemporaries are dead. <laughs> that, that, that's the reverse of the, the, the Oscar Wilde famous quip. It's, it's not enough to succeed, but you must see your friends fail. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's a strange, strange business. If you take the, talking about horror, the, the Justin Cronin's novel, the, the Passage that everybody's the talking passage, about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, you know, he was a fair to middling two book guy who won a Penn Hemingway Award for his first book. And um, his agent said, how about trying a horror novel under a pseudonym? And uh, as soon as they paid him three million, he put his own name on it. <laughs> and I mean, the, I don't know, how many of you have read The Passage? Yeah, that's a good sign, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's there was a writer talking. 800 pages. <laughs> And, you know, and there are a couple of good pages in it, and, but the, the, the plot is, uh, I mean, there's a, a wonderful birth scene that takes place about three quarters of the way through the book, where, and you know the, the, the parents are going to be murdered by the vampires, you know, before the kid gets to be a year old. Um, but, you know, it's completely overinflated. It's every, everything, there isn't anything in the plot that somebody hasn't done better before um, in movies and in fiction and uh, it's on the bestseller list. I mean, so it's hard. How do you explain that? What's the appeal? Marketing. Marketing. I mean, yeah. The yeah. thing is, you know, a publisher will pay, put in, I think the rule of thumb is a dollar in advertising for every dollar they've paid the, the writer. The yes. advanced reading copies went into, they sold, they printed more advanced reading copies of this book than they often print of actually really good books. I think there are 10,000 copies of just the advanced reading copies. When you Mm -hmm. So many books are on the bestsellers list. Yeah. And so many of them are so awful. Well, you know, there, there, somebody there. I just wondered how, how do you get to be on the bestsellers list? It doesn't mean it's, uh, is, it, is it just advertising? And I think Mencken, Mencken had a way of, of describing that. But, um. Oh, you got to say what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was it nobody ever, uh, nobody ever. Went broke. Went broke, underestimating the intelligence of the average American. Oh, yeah. Um, but but there, there are a couple of studies of the bestseller list, which is a, a fairly recent phenomenon. It started around uh, the end of World War I. And a couple of the, the, these books will list all of the bestsellers month by month for 100 years. Almost 100 years. And you can run your eye through that entire list and find maybe a dozen or two out of these hundreds of books whose titles you recognize. So it's, um, it's a bit like, um, you know, you've got these champion, these champion horses, the thoroughbreds, and you have a race in which a lot of also-rans are assembled because it's not a race if they can't beat somebody. So they, they bring out all of these also rans to run alongside the thoroughbreds and thoroughbreds always win or most of the time always win but it's marketing um, which is a modern uh, phenomenon well you have to you know you can't pay attention to those lists a lot of people do um, but the, those lists go along with uh, you know Big Macs and certain kinds of golf shirts if you let it <coughs> but I remember um Sometime <coughs> back in, in the, Lord, my memory's going, it was the late 70s or early 80s. Um, I know I was still in Watsonville. And I got sent by my editor, Ballantine Del Rey Books, whom I was quite fond of, Judy Lynn Del Rey, an enormous manuscript called The Sword of Shannara for my imprimatur, for a blurb. And I got a couple of chapters into it and called her to say, Judy Lynn, this isn't just a Tolkien ripoff. This is, point for point, this is an eighth or ninth rate Tolkien ripoff. It's dreadful. And she said firmly, never mind, I know what I'm doing. And she almost always did. This is for people, and I'm quoting her exactly, this is for people who have read The Lord of the Rings 40 times and can't quite get it up for the 41st but they still want it. They still want the mixture as before. I'm going to make millions in this. And she was dead right. 
she usually was. And that opened, for me, that book opened the floodgates because everybody wanted one of those. And to some extent, the floodgates continued. Yeah, you see that in horror. You see Stephen King up here and Dean Kunst there, and then about 18 little imitators underneath Dean Kunst, whose name I love to say. (laughs) (laughs) He should be called anti-Kunst. But now that we've had this uplifting uh, (laughs) session, perhaps you have some questions that could take us even lower. Yeah, we're, we're just really working, we're bordering an obscenity. Somebody can help it out. And if you have a question, let me uh, bring you the microphone. Well, I was just wondering when you uh, review books, do they ask you what to look at a book and then review it, or do you choose the books? I, I receive a lot of books, yes. Okay, and then you can turn it down, though, if you don't want to review it, or you oh, sure. just are honest about it? Sure. Well, I'm not honest about it. I always blame, <laughs> my, I always blame my producer. Okay. I, say, I would love to do this, but my producer says it. Oh, great. No. Okay. Because <laughs> your views are wonderful, Thank so. You. Thanks. Peter, you were talking earlier about a book that you wrote, uh, a story that you wrote to be read. And I'm wondering what, the, what you do differently when you write to be read as appo- uh, to be read aloud as opposed to be read silently. Not a great deal thinking about it. I've never done podcasts before. And I know that, like, in one sense, like most of us as a narrator, I probably write for my own voice, the same way songwriters, singer-songwriters, will have a tendency to write for their own range, their own quality, their own timbre. But I spend a lot of time, more than, probably more than on anything else, on dialogue and on speech rhythms, on the way that people, not only the words they use, but the order in which they put them, the rhythm with which they make sentences, because for me that's like fingerprints. If I can get a narrator's sound, then somehow the rest is easy, comparatively easy. And I know that there is a difference. Scott Fitzgerald never made, never, never made a breakthrough as a screenwriter, for instance, and part of it has to do with the fact that his dialogue is really written to be read. It isn't spoken dialogue. It's close to it, but it isn't. And Do you have an example, could you? For him or? You know, of, a, of a something that, a sentence that was written to be read as opposed to Not spoken or, or Oh, um, you if you look at, yeah, if, the one thing I can say, if you read or look at my first novel, A Fine and Private Place, okay. I was, for the most part, consciously, writing to be read, or writing in a certain style. I think that had to do with my having discovered the work of Robert Nathan, who became a good friend in the last 20 years of his life. But um, Robert's dialogue was lovely to read, but it wasn't something that you expected actors to be saying, or something you might act out to yourself Mm -hmm. in the same way. I don't think he ever intended it to be. Um, on the other hand, writing a oh a story, for instance, called Tamsin, which is told by a young woman who's about 18 or 19 now, but is ta- talking about a time when she was 13. And there, it was almost given to me because I could hear her voice. And nobody forgets 13 male or female, nobody does. And I could hear her talking in my head. It wasn't the way I talk, and the moment that I got off the beam and it started to be the way I talk, I knew immediately. And I could pinpoint exactly where I'd gone off the rails. This does not always happen, but it did you know, with that narrator. And that was it. So you re- like a musician, writer with, your, with perfect pitch. I think, I think, I think, like a musician, or I try, anyway, I know that even with the first book, I find myself thinking consciously, 
Well, this would be like a, this, the scene here, this would, the dialogue would be like a string quartet. Mm-hmm. You know, or this would be, this is where you bring up the brass. Mm-hmm. And I still do that to some degree. I'm not always as conscious of it as I was then. But I do think in musical terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think every, every serious writer does. I mean, if you think about Hemingway's dialogue, I mean, that's meant to be sung. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not ordinary speech, although it right. pretends to be ordinary speech. Um, it, it would be as if we were singing arias to each other instead of saying, pass the butter. Wouldn't ordinary speech be really boring in a book? Yeah, well, you know, uh, Andy Warhol made a career of <laughs> recording everything that people said yeah. uh, to him, and you can see that it, it, it's pure boredom, and he turned it into an art form. Um, <laughs> 24 hours of a movie called Sleep, right? Who's, who's, who stayed awake through the whole thing. But if you think about, you know, in broader terms, the I mean, American fiction is a, very, is a very young art, comparatively, and so we begin with uh, uh, writers like Fenimore Cooper who uh, can't write what we take to be an American sentence. You know, and, um, Twain, Twain, Twain famously made a great deal of fun out of his prose. But that's the way Americans at that time thought. They thought like Brits. Um, and they spoke like Brits. Um, and then eventually you see this shift that Twain, first, in large part, picks up on. First to dialect humor, yeah. like Artemis Ward, and then to Twain. Twain learned, but Twain learns from the, from, the, from the local colorists and the, and, the, and the humorists. I don't think that, I do think that Oscar Wilde undoubtedly said, uh, um, the same way everybody else does. I just don't think Oscar Wilde ever said, you know, that I refuse to believe. I was just reading an, a, a, a novel, a thriller, in which uh, there's a character who, a, a bodyguard, this is the new Carl Hyacin. Oh, well. By a, he's a bodyguard of, a, of a, a very bad young female rock singer. And um, one of the things he does his job is secure because he's the only bodyguard who can actually keep tabs on her. He has a taser, and every time she says like, he <laughs> jolts her because he can't bear to hear the speech deformed in that way. But So you have this shift from, say, Cooper to the writers leading up to Twain, and then Twain shows us in, in, in Huck Finn just how Americans might speak in an ideal world, and then, and then Hemingway picks up on that. What we use. Change the American yeah. sentence. Somebody used the phrase heightened speech. I mm-hmm. can't think who it is, but nobody ever <coughs> quite talks. Who's the? Auden, I okay, that fits. When my first story I ever actually sold, I was a, God help me, a teenager, is for me unreadable <laughs> because it's, it's bad J.D. Salinger. My only, my only defense is that at that time everybody I knew who wanted to write was writing like J.D. Salinger. I'm grateful for one thing, oddly enough. I wrote about this a while back. Because of being hooked early on on fairy tales, on myths, on fantasy writers, on people like, I remember Ursula Le Guin's very earliest books, which were in paperback, and Fritz Leiber, and T.H. White, and so on, I missed the whole business of being hooked on Hemingway that young male writers of our generation were supposed to go through. It was understood that if you want to write novels, at least if you were young and male, emphasize the male, um, Fitzgerald and Hemingway stood in the path like Apollyon in Pilgrim's Progress. You had to deal with them. Some, I missed that part. Well, steeping yourself in the Hemingway is kind of like having a childhood disease, but you come out all right on the other side of it, I think. I don't know, Mailer never got over it. <laughs> it's true. I'm literally, literally, there's a, a passage, in a, a, God help us, one of his lovemaking scenes, or whatever it is they're doing, when she says, was it good for you? She said, having read The Hemingway, and I'm quoting directly. <laughs> We must not speak ill of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? <laughs> the living can touch you in the eye. <laughs> I knew the questions would keep us down in the gutter. 
We have another question over here. Could you speak just a little bit about the origin of a fine and private place, kind of how that evolved or happened? Actually, actually it happened in an afternoon. I mean, I may have been preparing for it for a long time. As I say, I'd been reading Robert Nathan more than anybody at that time. But I was 19, and I was a music counselor at a summer camp in Cold Spring, New York. And there really wasn't anything to do at night, you know, after the kids were put to bed, unless you had a girlfriend in the, the girls' camp across the lake, which I didn't. Or, and this is this, you know, literature may hinge on this, because the only way you could get beer was to walk four miles that way and then four miles back. Today, I'd probably do it. <laughs> but back then, instead, you know, I took my little portable typewriter and sat down in an empty room, office room at the camp, had a lot of paper, and I decided that it was time for me to write a novel, just like that. I didn't know what it should be about, but I hitchhiked home on my day off and spent the day, most of the day, you know, with my family, and I went for a walk in the local cemetery, about two blocks, <coughs> a block and a half from where I'd grown up, with my mother. It was a beautiful June or July day, and we started talking about how how huge some of the mausoleums were and how easy it would be to, to live in one. <laughs> uh, there were, I mean, there were restrooms, there were fountains, and the, some of the things, the walls were so thick that they'd certainly protect you from the elements. My mother, being a practical woman, wanted to know, well, how would you live? How would you nourish yourself? And I just tossed off, oh, well, like, you know, Elijah in the Bible, you get fed by a raven. And basically, by the time we were out of that cemetery, I more or less had the plot that people know as, as the a fine and private place. And I went back to camp and started writing. I did three chapters that summer. What I didn't have was the very elaborate subplot having to do with one character's death, whether it was murder or suicide. And I love mysteries, and I really worked hard on that. Four chapters woven in there. And my real luck, you know, apart from having a cemetery and a mother who liked taking walks there, talking about books, my real luck was having one of the great old-time editors. His name was Marshall Best. And Marshall took out all four of my my beloved mystery chapters. I'd worked so hard on those. <laughs> and, um, and he took out a lot else. <laughs> and he actually edited my book. And I didn't understand what the editing process was like at 19 and 20, and what a real editor does. And I fought him every step of the way. And if he hadn't done what he did, that book would not be in print today. And I, I lucked out with Marshall Best, who's long gone, and I hope to God I had sense and manners enough to say thank you at the end of it. I hope so. I don't know. Robert, um, there's one last question here. One last question. Um, storytelling, I mean, much of what I've heard you know, tonight has to do with the all-importance of, of storytelling, of narrative. And I'm wondering what you think the craving is, the need we all have, myself included, for, for story. What, what does story do for us? Why this uh, tremendous craving for it? But so, everyone here tonight is here because of story. Yeah. For myself, I don't know. I don't, I don't have, at that level, I don't have theories. What I'm certain of is that um, I'm certain of is that what we do, long manuscripts or short, between hard covers, on paper, one kind or another, may disappear in the next generation. Story won't. 
story one way and the other will always survive. It seems to be as basic a need as food or sex. And that's really all I know, except that it survives everywhere. Sometimes it turns into religion, sometimes it turns into theater, play. Um, sometimes it's just, it's not just um, my father telling me bedtime stories, it's me curling up under the stairs in our apartment building telling myself stories. And I've met, you know, other people, other children, you know, who are already hooked on it. I can never be certain whether I fell in love with words first when I couldn't write or story. I don't know. I think it was pro probably story. I, I, I would like to do a survey, but it's probably something best left done in private and in anonymously. But, I mean, think of how many nights a year you go to bed with a book and how many nights a year you have sex and you can see that the need for story far outstrips <laughs> the need for sex. Um, but ser seriously. Oh gosh, Batman, will you explain I, I, it like that? I, I'm going to raise this to a higher level, but first let me stoop. Um, John Barth tells this very funny story about a kid, a graduate student of his who came into his office with, a, with a, a manuscript this thick, and he said, Mr. Barth, Mr. Barth, I've got a really terrific experimental novel. And Barth said, really? It's interesting. He said, yes, I, inspired by you, I've written my own experimental novel. He says, turn the pages, turn the pages. You see that page? Barth says, yes, there's some hair you've pasted on the page. He says, yes, that's the story of my life. It's a, it's a bildungsroman, and that's when I get my first haircut, and I put a lock of my hair there. And, and that lipstick, Barth says, that's your first kiss? He says, that's right. Yeah, I got the lipstick and I put it on the page. And, and look, page uh, 82, that, that, that's a stain of my own semen from the first time I had sex. And Barth said, I looked at him with a very straight face and said, son, if this is a bestseller, you're a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> but, <in> any <laughs> theory, but if we can go back up for a moment. I mean, I think, Robert, this is, a, you know, a need. Uh, Rick's already talked about, you know, food and, and sex. We need to be in someone else's story. In, in a way, it validates our own stories. It breaks down this infernal solipsism that we live with all the time. It breaks down those walls. And it's the real, you know, there's a lot of talk about community, which I'm sure Ezra Pound would spell with a K, the same way he spells culture. But yes. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about the need for community, but you don't have any real community until you're in someone else's mind. And the way you get into someone else's mind is by, is by reading. And you get into someone else's, particularly with poetry, endocrinological system to feel the way someone else has felt about a certain uh, situation, common and sometimes uncommon, sometimes familiar to us, sometimes new to us. And I think that's what reading does for us. Um, in a world of the fabled ones and zeros, you know, the linear world, uh, what reading does for us is restore our sense of analogy, restore our sense of language as a symbolic mechanism. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm all for the, you know, the PC. It's, it's a kind of Cadillac or Mercedes of a typewriter. And I'm, I'm all in favor of that. I'm not, I don't want to sound like a Luddite, but it doesn't give you what story gives you, which is casting you into another world, into another mind, allowing you to recognize what you hadn't seen before, which is the similarities in apparently enormous differences. What Einstein called spooky action at a distance. That's okay. how he talked about quantum mechanics. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Alan and Peter. That was a fascinating discussion. It worked exactly as I had. I think I said about seven words. And but they Thank were good words. They were good words. <laughs> um, I'll be back in a month with Barry Eisler and David Corbett talking about uh, political mystery and fiction. David Corbett's been a, uh, was a private eye for 19 years before he started writing mysteries. Barry was in the CIA before he started writing about the CIA. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for two of America's finest authors here tonight with you. you. It was great to have you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.